Well, turn in your Bible to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. And we'll begin today with one of the most famous, if not the most famous verse in all of Psalm 119. We'll talk about what the psalm has to say to us in that verse and the next three this morning. And then we'll zoom out and talk about a big picture principle about God's law. And we'll look at one particular aspect of the law and start to learn to see how that applies today. Now, most messages, most sermons that you're familiar with tend to have the application at the end. It's a little bit different in this series because the application is kind of mixed in as we look at the the verses from Psalm 119, and then we're moving on to some bigger picture principles. So if you're looking for those action points, they're probably going to be in the first 15 to 20 minutes or so this morning. And then we can move on to the kind of theological foundations about God's law. Well, our verses this morning are verses 105 to 108. Now let's read those verses, and then we'll dig in to look at each one individually. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Accept my freewill offerings of praise, O Lord, and teach me your rules. Well, our first verse this morning is probably a familiar one if you grew up in the church, and with good reason. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. This is a really important truth about God's word, about God's law. God's word is a lamp and a light. So the light shines in the day, the sun, for example, and a lamp is used at night. Now, in the ancient Near East, there were no street lamps. There's no lamp post. There's no security lights. There's no lighted paths. So if you wanted light at night, you have to take that light with you. Two of our children, I won't name which ones, had left something outside one evening this week, and so they had to go outside to get it, and they were quite hesitant to go out in the dark, especially because they thought they heard a bear in the backyard. Now, if there had been lots of light, then they could have seen that there was no bear, but it was dark, so they went out with a flashlight and with their mom standing by the door. But darkness hides things. When we have light, we can see where we're going. We can see what dangers are there. This verse is telling us that God's word is appropriate and necessary in every particular situation. So if you're in a difficult or a dark place, you need the light of God's word. But even if you're in a good place, things are going well, it's like daytime for you, even then you still need God's word. It's a light and a lamp. Now, the path in this verse is our course of life. I'm realizing I don't have the verse up for you. There it is. So the path is our, just kind of our general way of life, our general course. And feet indicates step-by-step choices. So if you are, for example, climbing a mountain path, You have a general direction you're going. You have the path that you're following up the mountain. But you also have to choose where to put each foot as you go. Avoiding the loose rocks, choosing the solid ground. So the word of God sets our general direction, but it also guides us every step of the way. And the last thing I want to point out from this verse is that when the psalmist says that God's word is a lamp to our feet, he's implying Action, walking, 
Jeremiah 6.16 says, Thus says the Lord, Stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. So ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it. God's word is what reveals those ancient paths, the good way. It's not a new revelation. It's not man's reason. It's the ancient paths taught by God's word, marked out by thousands of saints before us, and walk in them. Verse 106 says, I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. So here the psalmist has resolved or promised to keep God's laws. That's a serious commitment. It's an oath, he says. There are a number of reasons that somebody might make a promise like this could be a promise that is made when someone needed special deliverance from God. Psalm 66, verses 13 and 14 say, I will perform my vows to you, that which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. It could also be a promise that is made in repentance. If you read the story in 2 Chronicles 34 of King Josiah leading the nation in repentance after the book of the law was found when it had been gone for a long time, they committed together to keep God's law. Could also be a promise that's made just simply out of gratitude for what God has done in someone's life. Psalm 116 verses 8 and 9, for you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Whatever the reason, when we've committed to obey God, we should keep our promise. Numbers 30 verse 2 says, If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Now, if you're a believer here this morning, then you've committed to follow Jesus. And God's word is what teaches us how to do that. So we should keep our word and follow his commandments. Verse 107 says, I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Nobody likes to go through affliction. And we've talked about this a lot through Psalm 119 because the psalmist says it often. But sometimes affliction is what we need. The Bible describes that in a couple of different ways, but one of them is the idea that God is like a father who permits something to happen in the life of his child. As parents, you know how it is. On the one hand, you want to remove all of the suffering and difficulty for your kids because you don't like to see them in pain or suffering. But at the same time, sometimes they need to go through difficulties. So you hold back from rescuing them. You let them work on solving it themselves. They climb up higher than they realize in the tree and all of a sudden they're afraid and they don't know how they can get down. Maybe it's the right time to give them space to figure it out and to overcome their fear and work their way down. Some parents never do that. They're always stepping in and taking care of things for their kids. God's not like that. He doesn't treat us so delicately as to never allow us to face difficult situations and have to work through them. But he is always with us in those difficult, hard times. Sometimes the hard times are what shapes our character. 
It's good for us. Just like in the physical world, you need to encounter germs and bacteria. That helps build up your immunity. Same is true in spiritual things. You need to encounter challenges and difficulties in order to grow your faith. That's why James writes, James 2, verse 3, excuse me, James 1, verses 2 and 3, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. And then finally, verse 108, accept my freewill offerings of praise, O Lord, and teach me your rules. The psalmist describes his praise as if he's making an offering or a sacrifice to God. So that would put him in the role of a priest. Now, the Old Testament shows us the priesthood and the priests were necessary for any offering being made to God. A priest was a mediator between God and man. Once we get to the New Testament, we see that Jesus is our great high priest. Now, we're going to talk about that a little bit later in the message this morning. Jesus is the perfect priest. But the New Testament story doesn't even stop there. We are also taught then that we are priests. Peter says that we are a royal priesthood, kings and priests. So we offer sacrifices to God, but they're spiritual sacrifices. And they're offered through Jesus. So what kind of offerings or sacrifices do we make? Do we make sin offerings? No. The Old Testament priests did that, but that was looking forward to Jesus. When Jesus offered himself as a sin offering, he was acting as both the priest and the sacrifice. And when he offered himself, he was the perfect final sacrifice for sin. There never needs to be another the sacrifice of Jesus takes care of the sins of all of God's people for all time. Hebrews 10:14 says, "For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified." So what kind of offerings do we make? Well, we make an offering of praise, free will offerings of praise. Hebrews again helps us here, chapter 13 of Hebrews verses 15 and 16. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Now that brings us right back to this verse, where the psalmist finishes by saying, teach me your rules. God has to teach us what is good. We're supposed to do good. That's part of our offering of praise. But God has to teach us what is good. Rules here is literally judgments, meaning God's statutes or rules, but also his providential decisions in our lives. It's everything about what is good and how we're supposed to live rightly before him. And when the psalmist says, teach me, that's a posture of humility. Offerings of praise also show humility. And that's the right attitude for us to have in approaching God. Humility. Accept my freewill offerings of praise, O Lord, and teach me your rules. Well, each week after we've looked at the verses from Psalm 119 about God's law, we're zooming out to the big picture of the whole Bible to learn more about God's law. If the psalmist 
so loves God's law, then we need to know what it is and why he loves it. So we're looking at one principle each week, and then usually also a particular case law that kind of illustrates the principle. If we believe what the psalmist says, all the wonderful things he has to say about God's law, then it only makes sense that we would work to understand God's law. So that's what we're aiming to do. Now, last week, we introduced a principle that we're going to continue for a couple of weeks. And the principle was this. In Christ, the ceremonial law is still valid today. It may sound strange to you. It probably should. There's a sense in which that's true, and there's a sense in which we can also say that it has been fulfilled, that it's not valid in that sense. But we saw last week that it is correct to say that the ceremonial law has been done away with, but it's not the whole picture. In a very important sense, a deeper sense, the ceremonial law is still valid. It's still being fulfilled right now, today, on our behalf. Jesus is fulfilling that law right now. And not only that, but the law, the law underneath the law, hasn't changed. That underlying law was displayed for a time through the ceremonial law. And we no longer practice the specific rituals of the ceremonial law. But today, that underlying law is displayed in a different, more complete way. We looked at a chart last week. And I'm going to have us take a quick look at it again, uh, just as a refresher, or for those that weren't here, just so that we can kind of get our minds around this. And so we started with the, the law, the law underneath the law. And this is based on God's unchanging character. This is the way the world is because of who God is. And then when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? What does he say? What's his summary of God's law? The most foundational, essential statement of the law, Jesus says, is, he says, the first commandment is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So love God and love others. And then we can realize that that every other aspect of God's law grows out of those things. So we say, well, what does it actually look like? in practice, to love God and love others? Well, it looks a lot like the Ten Commandments, okay? So don't have any other gods and don't take God's name in vain. Those are ways that you love God. And Don't steal and don't commit adultery and don't bear false witness. Those are ways that you love others. And then we say, well, okay, how do those basic commandments work themselves out in the lives of a community? What does it look like to love God and love others in society? And that's the civil law. That's the civil law, holy living in the society. But what happens when we don't do it? When we don't love God and love others? When we violate or break that law? And that's where the ceremonial law comes in because it reveals to us God's plan to redeem his people. It shows us the various aspects of what Jesus would do. So then we say, okay, well, in a society, how do we actually take the civil law and work it out into specific scenarios? Like what should the penalties be and, and all of that? That's the case laws. And then the ceremonial law works itself out in a couple of ways. There's the laws of separation. So Israel was holy. They were unique. They were separate from the other nations. Then there's the laws of temple worship. Okay, we're talking about the priest this morning. So that's where we're going to be focused. And there's festivals and holidays. So the cycle of time revealed God's plan of salvation throughout time. So that's a way to understand the law. 
the law underneath the law is foundational to all of it. And while the moral law is timeless, the particular applications, the, way, the things that grow out of it, change according to the context. And it is messy to sort it all out. Now, let's take a look at one particular part of the ceremonial law. This morning and next week, we're going to look at the role of the priest. And I'm breaking it into two parts just for the sake of time. There's too much for one message. So here's how it's going to work. Today, we are going to look at the person of Melchizedek. We sang Psalm 110, and you had that strange name in the middle of that song to try to sing, Melchizedek. We're going to talk about who he is and how he relates to Old Testament law and how he points us forward to Jesus. And then next week, we'll look more generally at the role of the priest. So I'm going to ask you to start by turning with me to Exodus chapter 28. We're going to look at four different books this morning. Exodus 28 is the first one. This is going to be our launching pad because this is where the priesthood is introduced. And the other three passages are the three books in the Bible where Melchizedek is mentioned. There's only three. And we're going to look at each of them this morning. Let me just encourage the kids that are here. If you've got a Bible in front of you, go ahead and follow along. Open up and, and follow along. I realize you won't catch everything that we talk about this morning, but guess what? The adults don't either. It's okay. It's a good thing to have that in front of you. All right, Exodus 28, I'm going to read the first four verses. Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with a spirit of skill that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments they shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checker work, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. I'm going to keep this simple. Here's the three things I want you to see there. Number one, God chose Aaron and his descendants to be priests. It's the tribe of Levi. It's Aaron. And then as you go down, it even narrows further as the tribes grow. It narrows down to Zadok and his family. Second, the priesthood was essential for the old covenant ceremonial law and worship. Without the priest everything would grind to a halt. The priest was essential for that ceremonial law to take place. And third, the priests served God and were mediators between God and man. We'll probably talk more about that idea next week. All right, next passage. Turn with me to Genesis 14. Genesis 14. In this passage, we have the story where Melchizedek shows up. Then later we're going to look at a psalm that references Melchizedek. Then we'll go to the New Testament and see what the author of Hebrews does with those two passages and how he reasons to explain something about Jesus from those two passages. Genesis 14. Okay. The, the, the scenario here, the background, is that the city of Sodom and a couple other cities that were its allies have lost a battle. And Abraham's nephew, Lot, who lived there, has been captured. 
And so now Abraham goes with uh, his trained men to go rescue Lot, and he wins, and so he returns from war, and then he meets with the kings as he comes back. So Genesis 14, starting in verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Keterleomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him, that's to meet Abraham, at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I'll take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. That's it. That's the story where Melchizedek shows up. It's not a lot. It's just a couple of verses. And if you took those verses and you pulled them out, the rest of the story reads perfectly sensibly without him in there. But he's breaking into this story, and it's just kind of a unique little thing that happens here. Melchizedek. Melchizedek is the king of Salem. The word Salem is the word shalom, peace. Okay? It's also, most scholars agree, Jerusalem. So it's the city of Jerusalem that is where Melchizedek is king. And he's also the priest of God Most High. And he doesn't use the covenant name of Yahweh or Jehovah like what in the version of Psalm 110 that we sang. He doesn't use that name. It's just God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. So you might say, well, are they talking about the same God? But look at verses 19 and, verse, and, and 22. Melchizedek calls God, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. Then down in 22, Abram calls God, God Most High, I'm sorry, yeah, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. It's the same terminology. So we're talking about the same God. And so you might say, well, who is this guy who is outside of the family of Abraham who seems to actually be worshiping the true God? Who is this? Are there people outside of Abraham's family that know the true God? This is where it actually helps to get our chronology straight a little bit. At this point in time, Noah's three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, are still alive. Abram is a descendant of Shem. So Noah knew the true God. There's many people on earth at this point in time who know the true God. It shouldn't be a surprise to us that Melchizedek shows up from Jerusalem and is familiar with the true God. It's been just over 430 years since the flood. That's a little bit longer than when the pilgrims landed at Plymouth to today. All right, so our nation has changed a little bit. There's lots of people, lots of growth. But there are plenty of people who still hold to some of the same principles that the pilgrims did. It would be a similar idea. And Melchizedek blesses Abraham, and then Abraham gives a tithe to Melchizedek. Those are important things for us to note for how the later passages help us to think about it. So that's it. That's the story. Now turn to Psalm 110. 
Psalm 110. This is the one that we sang a little bit earlier this morning. Psalm 110. It's only seven verses long, and I'm going to read the whole thing for us. Psalm 110. Just follow along as I read. A Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is probably, at least some of the verses in there, familiar if you've grown up in church. This psalm is the single most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. It's quoted more often than any other passage. And there's a reason for it. As you get started with Psalm 110, we read right away, the Lord says to my Lord. When you see Lord in all capital letters, that's referring to Yahweh. That's the covenant um, name of God that he has revealed himself to his people with. But the second time you see Lord, it's not that way. That's just the generic word for a Lord or master. Now, who wrote the psalm? Well, it says it's a psalm of David, and that's important because if it was someone else writing it, you would read this and you would, get, you would say, Yahweh says to my Lord, and you would say, well, my Lord must be David the king. But it's David who's writing it. So who is David's Lord other than Yahweh? Yahweh says to my Lord, David says. How do you make sense of this? This can only be the Messiah. In a Middle Eastern understanding, ancient Near Eastern Israelite understanding of things, ancestors are greater. So your descendants are not greater than you. But there's got to be something, there's someone who is greater than David. And we're going to see as time goes on that it's the Messiah. How do we sort that out? Let's look at the rest of the psalm, and then we'll go to Hebrews and see how it gets interpreted. There's two kind of prophetic statements in this psalm. The first one is the end of verse 1. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now that's being said to the Messiah. David's functioning as a prophet here. Now, when you get to the New Testament, that phrase, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, gets used in a variety of ways. The New Testament writers pull all kinds of truths from that. They teach us that Jesus is greater than David, that he's greater than angels, that he's been exalted to God's side, that he's seated at God's right hand where he's interceding for us, that his sacrifice is complete, and that he's moving toward having all of his enemies defeated. All of that the New Testament writers pull from that phrase. Then the second oracle or statement is in verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. And here it is. 
you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, just like verse 1, this is still addressed to the Messiah. The rest of the psalm, outside of verse 4, is all about the theme of kingship, but verse 4 says, you are a priest after the order of Melchizedek. It seems out of place. And when you go into Old Testament law, the priest we just read are the descendants of Aaron, who's of the tribe of Levi. The kings are to be from the tribe of Judah. So a king can't be a priest and a priest can't be a king. And David knows that. In fact, his predecessor, King Saul, tried to act like a priest and it got him in big trouble. He was making sacrifices and he wasn't supposed to do that. So David knows something unusual is happening here. Now, I've been greatly helped in understanding this whole idea by D.A. Carson. And so I'm following a lot of what he says as I try to explain this to you. I just want to give credit where credit is due. But he kind of asks the question, where does David get this idea? Where does David somehow get the, the notion that the Messiah is going to be both a king and a priest? And Carson suggests, he says, well, remember what the kings were supposed to do. Deuteronomy 17, according to the law, what's a king supposed to do? As soon as he becomes king, he sits down and he writes out his own personal copy of the law. So David has done that. And then he's supposed to read it. And so Carson says, maybe he's sitting there reading his, you know, his copy of the law. And he's thinking about, okay, kings and priests are from different lines. And he, he comes to Genesis 14 and he reads the story there. And he says, here we have someone who's a king and a priest. And what's happening in David's life? Well, when David becomes king, he's not king over all of Israel. He's king at Hebron, not at Jerusalem, and he's king over Judah, not over Israel. It's just a couple of tribes for the first seven years of his reign. And then eventually he becomes king over the whole nation of Israel and he moves his capital to Jerusalem. What else happens at the same time? The tabernacle is brought to Jerusalem for the first time. The tabernacle had been at Shiloh. And then at that point, the Ark of the Covenant was taken out. It was taken into battle. It was captured by the Philistines. They carried it off to Philistia. The tabernacle gets moved to Gibeon. And so the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant have been separate. They've been in different places. The king is in Hebron. It's all over the place. That's never been all brought together. But when David moves to Jerusalem, he moves his capital city there. The tabernacle is brought to Jerusalem. The ark is recovered and brought. And now we have the royal house and the priests together in Jerusalem for the first time. And David reads Genesis 14. And here's Melchizedek, king of Salem, Jerusalem, who is a king and a priest. And David has to reason to himself, there must be a greater king, a greater priest in one person yet to come. That's how he gets to his reasoning here in Psalm 110. 
a priest and a king, David's thinking, to whom Abraham gave tithes. So this priest king, Melchizedek, is superior to Abraham. If the priestly ceremonial law then is given to Abraham's descendants through the tribe of Levi, Aaron, and if the priests are themselves inferior to Abraham because they come after him as his descendants, then there must be a superior royal priesthood coming someday. And if there's going to be a change in the priesthood, remember the priesthood is essential. The ceremonial law does not happen without the priest. But if that priesthood is insufficient, if it's going to be gone someday, if there's going to be a different priesthood, then the whole law covenant is going to change. Now turn with me to the last book we're going to go to, Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews 7. I mentioned to you how often Psalm 110 is quoted. It's quoted quite a bit in Hebrews. In fact, like here in my Bible, it's quoted twice up here. It's quoted down here. It's quoted up here. All just on the, these pages in Hebrews. It's all, it's all kind of centering on Psalm 110. Melchizedek shows up in Hebrews 5, 6, and 7. But we're just going to look at the kind of conclusion in chapter 7. So follow along with me. We'll just take it a couple of verses at a time. First, verses 1 through 3. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. So that's the summary of the story we saw in Genesis 14. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Okay, so the author of Hebrews sees the name Melchizedek as significant. Melech means king, Tzedek means righteousness. He's king of righteousness. But the text also says he's king of peace. He's king of Salem. So all of these things are being brought together in this one person. Now, the author of Hebrews says that Melchizedek is without genealogy, without father or mother, without beginning or end of days. Is he really? Does it, who is this? Well, he is as far as the text is concerned. When you read the story in Genesis 14, Melchizedek is not introduced as Melchizedek, son of so-and-so. We never see where he's born, and we never see when he dies. The text just doesn't tell us. And D.A. Carson mentions, he says, it's really dangerous often to argue from silence, except when you're expecting noise and there's silence. And he gives the example, he says, uh, you know the story of Sherlock Holmes and the dog that barked in the night? And, you know, Holmes is trying to solve this murder mystery. And when he goes out to the house where it happened, the dogs are barking like crazy. And he's told, you know, the dogs always bark when they're strangers. And as he recounts or he learns the events of the night of the murder, the dog didn't bark, which means the murderer must be someone that the dog knew. Right? And so the silence was significant because you would expect noise. Here, you would expect, in Genesis 14, you would expect 
noise. You would expect father or mother, genealogy, birth, death, something that gives us a reference point because every other important person in scripture has that. Melchizedek doesn't. The author of Hebrews says that's significant. So in that, he resembles the son of God. He's like an eternal king priest. And the author of Hebrews is saying, that's what Jesus is. He's a type of Christ. Verse 4. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It's beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Okay, I know that you might get a little lost in that. Here's what that's saying. The person you pay tithes to is your superior. The Israelites pay tithes to the Levites. The, the person of Levi was still in Abraham's loins. In other words, not yet born. He was a descendant of Abraham, but he's present in Abraham when Abraham encountered Melchizedek. And Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. So if you follow the chain of who tithes to who, Melchizedek's at the top of the chain. He's superior to Abraham. He's superior to Levi. He's superior to all of the Levitical priests. That's the, that's the logic of what's going on here. And that means that even when the Levitical priesthood began, it was temporary. It was always intended to be replaced. It was pointing to something greater. Verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there's a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it's evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. So the author of Hebrews assumes the logic from Psalm 110. There must be a greater priesthood coming. And if the priesthood changes, then the whole ceremonial system must change too. It's kind of like if we did away with Congress, our whole system of government would have to change. right? It's just, it's essential to the way that the things operate. So, in that sense, the ceremonial law, which we had at the top of our chart, is done away with. But the law underneath the law doesn't change. This is not a change in God's moral law. It's a change in the outworking of it for a particular period of time. Only because what it was pointing to all along has finally come. So, if you were to now, today, 
go back to those rituals, go back to that priesthood, you would be denying what those rituals were saying because they were pointing forward to Christ. The only way for us to obey or fulfill the ceremonial law today is by faith in Christ because he's the one who's fulfilling it for us. Verse 15, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. So the Levitical priesthood was based on ancestry, the flesh, but the Melchizedekian priesthood is based on the power of an eternal life. Melchizedek, no father or mother, no beginning or end of days. Jesus, also eternal, also has an indestructible life. So you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, in what sense was the Old Testament ceremonial law weak or useless? We gave the illustration last week of the, the car. You buy the car, right? The, the design, the, the new model that's supposed to come out in 2024, and the way the car company operates is they give you a little model of it when you make that order. And then when the real thing is ready, you come into the dealership and you turn in the model and you get the real thing. And it would be crazy for you when 2024 rolls around and you get the phone call that says, hey, the car is ready for you to say, no, I'm just going to keep this one. In the same way, the ceremonial law is like the model car. It's pointing forward to a greater reality. And just like the model car won't get you to Columbus when you need to go there, you need the real thing. So too, the Levitical priesthood won't get you to Columbus. It, it won't get you to redemption. It won't get you to salvation. It won't get you to reconciliation with God. But the real thing will. Jesus will. Because he's of the order of Melchizedek. He's a priest and a king. It's an indestructible life. He's a greater priest. See, the, the Levitical priests all died and were replaced and they had to offer the sacrifices over and over and over again. So from the beginning, something greater was needed and Jesus provides that better hope. Verse 20, it was not without an oath for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. So he becomes a priest by the oath of God. It's permanent. It's better. Verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. And now we reach the conclusion. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So he's able to save you the whole way, not just symbolically or ceremonially, 
He can get you to Columbus. He can get you to redemption, to reconciliation. Verse 26, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Jesus is the priest we need. He's the one the system was pointing forward to. He's the one that perfectly fits the need that was introduced by sin. He's superior to the priests that were appointed under the Old Testament ceremonial law. Now, the whole story of Melchizedek tells us two main things. First, that old ceremonial system was always intended to be replaced. Just like the model car was always intended to be turned in so that you get the real thing, the ceremonial law was always intended to be replaced. Its purpose was to point to Jesus. So for us to fulfill or obey the ceremonial law today means doing what that law intended. Look to Jesus. That's how you fulfill that law today. And Jesus is the great high priest in the order of Melchizedek. He saves to the uttermost. He always lives to make intercession for us. If you still have your Bible open to Hebrews, we're going to close by looking at chapter 10, verses 21 to 25. Hebrews 10, 21 to 25. We've skipped a lot of the argument of Hebrews, but I want you to see the conclusion of this part of the message. Hebrews 10, starting in verse 21. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What are the action points there in those verses? What are you supposed to do because of this? Draw near. Draw near with a true heart, with full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. How is it that you can draw near? It's because your great high priest has gone in before you, has opened the curtain, the veil, opened the ways for you to have access. Hold fast. Hold fast the confession of our faith without wavering because he who promised is faithful. This book, Hebrews, is written to people who are tempted to go back to the ceremonial law. And he's saying, hold fast to the confession of faith, not ritual. Hold fast to the confession of faith in Jesus. We need to do the same today. I don't know what your temptation is. What is it that you are tempted to look to for security in your relationship with God? What is it that you kind of fall back into thinking will make God happy with you? Whatever it is, don't go there. Hold fast to the confession of faith in Jesus. 
That's what those rituals were for. They point to Jesus. Keep your eyes on him. Consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Love and good works. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Love and good works. Those two things hang together. Law and love hang together. Not neglecting to meet together. Why? Because word and worship are the primary means of how we encourage each other to love and good works. Encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. Let's close in prayer. Lord, it is quite a journey that we have been on through your word this morning in thinking through the person of Melchizedek and what that means about the law and what it means about Jesus. So I pray that you would take my feeble attempt to explain this and you would cement these important truths in our hearts and minds that we would be able to do what the author of Hebrews says, that we would draw near with full assurance, that we would be able to hold fast to our confession of faith in Jesus. Because we have this great high priest who ever lives to make intercession for us, may we be faithful to him as he is always faithful to us. We pray this in Jesus' name.